Um, If you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 11. Um, It's always a joy to get to open God's Word with you. And I'm going to be honest with you all before I really dive into what I have uh, prepared, spent all week preparing. Um, I needed this sermon this week. I I wasn't really sure what to preach. Chandler, uh, he, he maps out his series a little bit different in, in the sense that he already kind of knows where he's going uh, from a 10,000-foot perspective. And so I didn't want to continue what we were doing. Um, I wanted to do something that was kind of a standalone passage. And so I wasn't really sure what to preach. I, I landed on this text because of some ideas that have just sort of stuck with me over the last several months about this passage. And then once I started actually uh, digging into the text and figuring out how I was going to preach it, I found that what I thought I wanted the main emphasis to be uh, would not have been faithfully preaching the text, and it actually ended up being a little more uh, tricky, a little more difficult than I I really wanted it to be, and I I wrestled with it. Um, I was up here late last night finishing the sermon, uh, and so in lots of ways I feel uh, inadequate for the task before us, Um, but I I, I think it's, I'm pleased uh, to say that I think that God will be faithful to His Word, right? If we, if we look at the text, if we try to uh, faithfully read the text, and uh, despite the difficulties it may present, I think that God will see it through. Uh, just by means as a personal update, and kind of as a segue into today's text, uh, I'm sure many of you already know, it, it's been talked about here and there, uh, I recently began adjuncting part-time at Johnson University, very grateful for the elders allowing me to do so, um, the personnel team allowing me to kind of bump down to part-time so that I could do that. Uh, and I'm teaching two sections of a philosophical ethics course. Now, whenever I tell people that I am teaching a class called philosophical ethics, I usually get some puzzled looks. Uh, I don't know if that means people think really lowly of me, first off, or uh, usually people are, are thinking that it's some sort of hot-button ethics class, right? Uh, questions like, I don't know, is it ethical to use stem cells for research, or how do we determine at what point we take people off life support? These kind of big ethical questions that people grapple with. But that's not really the kind of questions we talk about in my course. Uh, Being a philosophical ethics class, we're dealing with what it means to think. What does it mean to learn? What does it mean to inquire about the world around us? And more specifically, I'm trying to show my students how different people over the the generations have leveraged these ideas to try to pursue the good life, right? So philosophers have always been trying to to find the good life, and and we see that in lots of different ways, right? If we were to look at, for example, ancient Judaism, like we would see in the Old Testament, the good life might look like upholding the law, right? Keeping the practices of Judaism, upholding things like the sacrificial system or the practice of circumcision or particular dietary restrictions or something like that. Two of the groups I talk about in my class are actually in the Bible, uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Paul interacts with them in Acts 17. Epicureans would suggest that the good life is pursuing pleasure without temperance, while the Stoics would have said that the good life meant escaping the passions of our bodies right? They didn't want to be ruled by their appetites, but instead wanted something more objective. For the recently passed philosopher James William Buffett, may he rest in peace, the good life looked like nibbling on sponge cake, 
watching the sun bake while wasting away in Margaritaville, right? That would probably feel good to a lot of you on a chilly fall morning. We are hardwired to chase down our own definitions of the good life. It has been a fundamental human question ever since the serpent sowed the seeds of doubt in the minds of Eve, how do we return to the good life we once had? As we will see in today's text, Jesus provides us with instructions on how to find the good life. In fact, as is often the case, the good life comes to us in a surprisingly human and a surprisingly powerless way. It comes to us not by the wisdom of the world, but by confessing the folly of the cross. It is through Christ's death and resurrection. But in this passage, Jesus also warns us that not everyone will obtain it. Like I said, this is a hard text to grapple with, and I warn you in advance that at some point, some of you might feel a little bit uncomfortable once we really start digging into what Jesus says here. But I think in the end, you and I will both see that Jesus makes clear that his fundamental point here is that the offer of the gospel is universal. That any who repents of their sin and confesses Christ as Lord can take up his yoke, receive saving knowledge of him, and find themselves in accordance with the will of God. Indeed, despite all the difficult things we will traverse on our way to get to that conclusion, we will see that ultimately Jesus offers us all the good life. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's pray, and then we're going to just work through this text, see what Jesus says, and, and try to digest what's really presented to us here in Matthew. So pray with me. God, you are gracious to us. You are good to us and kind to us. I pray that you would use me to communicate your truth, that despite uh, a long, exhausting week, uh, despite trying to figure out how to best articulate these deep truths that you have revealed about yourself, that you would allow me not to distract or take away from what you want to do in this place. I pray that we would be attentive to your word. I pray that your spirit would work among us, help guide us. Uh, we know that the spirit searches out the deep things of your nature, God, and that the spirit works to reveal those to us. And so I pray that that is what would happen, that we would have spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear what you have presented to us. It is in your son's name I pray, amen. So Matthew begins, sets the scene. He says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. By using the phrase, at that time, Matthew draws a connection between what Jesus has just said and then what Jesus begins to pray here. He's actually using a connecting word there, trying to say that, that the scene that we're about to encounter, this prayer of Jesus, actually relates to what he has just said. So I think it would make sense to spend a little time unpacking what he's just said, right? It makes sense. If, if that's the foundation for what's about to happen, we should probably get a good understanding of what these things are that Jesus is saying have been revealed. So let's backtrack a couple verses, beginning in verse 20. Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! 
For if the miracles that were done in you had been in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. But I tell you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, it's easy to check out, at least it is for me, whenever the New Testament begins to focus on uh, points of geography. I don't know if anyone else in the room has that problem. I have that problem. Uh, I kind of just glaze over. But I think these details are actually really important for understanding what Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus is using these cities as examples to prove a deeper truth about God and the nature of salvation and the way that God reveals himself. Plainly, Jesus says that Chorazin and Bethsaida are accursed because they were not repentant whenever Jesus performed miraculous works there. In fact, he suggests that Tyre and Sidon would have been repentant if he would have performed works there, but he didn't. And so they also weren't repentant, but it was for a very different reason, right? Then he says the same thing to the town of Capernaum, suggesting that they witnessed works that would have made even Sodom repent. So we see Chorazin, we see Bethsaida, we see Capernaum, all have witnessed these miraculous works of Jesus, works that would have led Tyre and Sidon and Sodom to repent and believe in God. However, these towns that have seen these works remained hard-hearted and arrogant, and they'll be punished accordingly on the day of judgment. Now, I want to draw out two implications from what Jesus has said here, uh, because I think that it's very easy to just skim right past these verses and not really digest what's happening. Um, and this is, this is what I think is so difficult about today's passage. First, and this is a hard, hard truth, but what Jesus says here seems to communicate that he intentionally does not perform saving works in the towns of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. He knows what kinds of works would have brought them to repentance, right? He says that. He says that he knows they would have been brought to repentance if he'd done the works there, but he didn't do them, and so they didn't repent. The truth of Jesus' divine identity remains hidden from those towns because Jesus never performed mighty works in them. And so on the one hand, we see that there are some towns that would have repented if they would have seen those works, but Jesus didn't go there and do them. And that's a decision he willfully seems to have made because it was the good pleasure of the Father. On the other hand, we have the implications for the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. In these towns, Jesus did accomplish the kinds of works that should lead people to repent, but because of their stubborn hearts, they refused to do so. As a result, they're actually storing up more judgment than it will be, than uh, there will be on the final day than these other towns, right? These other towns were ignorant because they never were exposed to the truth, not because they rejected it. However, for these towns that have rejected the truth, that have seen the works of Christ and willfully, hard-heartedly rejected them, they're storing up punishment that is qualitatively different than these other towns. This is the context in which Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. 
And he says that this was the Father's good pleasure. Now, I challenge you to let the full weight of this sink in. Um, because I, I'm, I have poured over this text all week, and I don't feel like I'm adding anything to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says it plainly. Matthew records these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The pleasure of the Father was to not reveal this truth to some towns that would have accepted it, but it was also his good pleasure to reveal it to towns that would reject it. This is the most basic, fundamental meaning of what Jesus says here. And in one sense, it's shocking to think that God would hide anything from anyone. After all, this is the very same Bible that in Acts 17 that I referenced earlier says that God has determined our appointed times and the boundaries of where we live so that we would seek after him and perhaps reach out and find him since he is not far from any one of us. It tells us in 2 Peter that God doesn't delay his promises, but he's patient with us, that he doesn't want any to perish and wants all to come to repentance. That doesn't sound like a God who would willfully hide the truth from a repentant town. In another sense, though, there's a myriad of verses that echo this same sentiment. For example, in Deuteronomy 29, we're told that the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but that revealed things belong to us and our children and forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. There are some things that God reveals to His people and their children so that they stay obedient to Him. In Isaiah 45, the prophet Isaiah calls God of, the God of Israel a God who hides. Isaiah, like a prophet, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls God a God who hides. Now, almost undoubtedly, just because I've, I've been around long enough, I've been here long enough, undoubtedly some of your alarm bells are going off right now, okay? So, everyone, let's take a deep breath. I want to make it really clear, I'm not about to preach a sermon on election, Okay? That's not where this is going. I know there's some of you that are afraid of that. Uh, but that's not, that's not what I'm, I'm doing. That's not where this is going. I'm simply trying to show you that there is a consistent language throughout the Bible about God hiding and revealing things. God is a God who both hides and reveals. People understand and apply this in different ways, but for the purposes of today, I'm just interested in how Matthew has presented what Jesus is saying here. And I think this is central to what he's saying. In fact, it's what he starts this whole section off. He says that he praises the Father because he has hidden things from the wise and has revealed them to children. This motif is important. Now, since this is a challenging idea, it kind of stretches our minds a little bit. At least it does mine. Maybe I'm just dumb. Um, but it stretches mine to think about this. So I want to spend a little more time. It's probably more time than I should spend on it. But I want to just spend a little more time working through it. Uh, because I think if we get past our initial uneasiness, that the rest of this text really falls into place in a very beautiful, profound way. So think about it with me on the most basic level. If something is never hidden, it can never be revealed. I know that sounds like a silly sentence, but it's true, right? Do you remember on The Price is Right, they used to have doors that would hide some of the grand prizes, right? They would have a trip to the Bahamas or some nice kitchen set or a brand new car, right? 
It would have been silly to say that they were revealing these things if they'd never hid them behind doors in the first place, right? There'd be no revelation. The hiding is part of the revelation. It's why we talk about God revealing himself through the created world. God's nature is invisible, and it's fully incomprehensible to us human beings. We can't perceive it. However, God has used the visible and comprehensible elements of the world to reveal himself, right? So he is revealing something that is hidden. And this same idea is applied throughout the Bible in a spiritual sense too. There's another passage in in Matthew that I think helps reinforce this idea. Just a couple chapters later in chapter 13, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask why he's speaking to the crowds in a bunch of parables. I don't know if you guys realize this, we, we typically like to think of parables as nice windows into divine truths, uh, but for most people, even for most Christians, I think, if, if people were really honest, parables are a lot more confusing than they are clear oftentimes, and especially whenever you are a first century uh, Jew who has no idea what this Jesus guy is talking about, right? These, these parables were concealing truths And this is what Jesus tells us, beginning in chapter 13, verse 10. The disciples came up to him and asked, why are you speaking to them in parables? And Jesus answered, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That is why I speak to them in parables. Because looking they do not see, hearing they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous, their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears, see with their eyes, not their ears, goodness, and, I he- and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn back, and I would heal them. Jesus explains that not everybody has the spiritual eyes and ears to receive the truth that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is only those who have true spiritual sight that will see. But those who do not fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. The hard-hearted and the arrogant, they look and look, but they never see. They listen and listen, but never understand. The New Testament uses this imagery elsewhere, too. I promise you, we will move on from this point momentarily. Uh, but I want to make sure that, that you believe me, that I'm not just saying this. In 1 Corinthians 3, for example, Paul reminds us that Moses, if you'll remember, he goes before God, he returns back to the Israelites, and he has to wear a veil over his face because they were worried that the Israelites were going to stare into the glory of God reflecting off of his face, shining like the sun. And then Paul goes on to say that in Christ, this veil is lifted. What was hidden is no longer hidden. Still today, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. We see veiling in the old covenant and an unveiling in the new. Paul concludes his letter to the Romans by calling the gospel and proclamation of Jesus Christ a mystery that was kept silent for long ages, but is now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures. I mean, pay attention to what he says there. He says that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of his life, death, resurrection, that was a secret 
a mystery that was kept secret in the prophetic writings, the, the Old Testament. That's not the New Testament, that's the Old Testament. That this story was being told in a mysterious way, and that in these last days it has been revealed through the life of Christ. There's one more example. It might sound kind of cheesy, it might be a little lame, uh, but I think it's fun, so I kind of wanted to say it. It always kind of blows people's minds. Uh, it's just really fun for me. But if these texts, if these citations, if these stories and themes aren't enough to convince you of this, uh, I, I think there's something to the fact that our entire Bible concludes with a book titled, in Greek, Apocalypsis, or Apocalypse. We commonly translate it as Revelation, right? But it's really more precisely capturing the idea of revealing or unveiling We don't really think about it whenever we say the word, the book of Revelation, but John wasn't looking off into the distance, trying to see some faraway vision that wasn't super clear. Instead, God was pulling back the curtain and revealing things to John. I don't think it's coincidental that our whole Bible culminates into God revealing hidden things to his people. It's a central theme throughout the entirety of the Bible. This is why, for example, the early church, early Christian heresy of Gnosticism was able to gain such a huge foothold because they took this biblical pattern of revealing hidden truths and they took it way too far. They overrealized it. They thought that it meant that a special group of people could have some sort of exclusive claim to God's truth or that they had been initiated into some special right that gave them access to the, to the real truths that weren't contained in just the book. But is that what Jesus says here? Let's continue in Matthew 11 and see what he says about this dynamic of hiddenness and revelation. He says this, All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. From the very mouth of Jesus himself, we see the antidote to a misguided way of understanding God's hiddenness. The emphasis of the gospel is not that some people get invited to hear the truth and others don't. The emphasis of the gospel is that God no longer stays hidden. He has revealed himself, and he has done it through the Son, and any who wish to believe in this can do so. He says that no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. The earthly ministry of Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of God's self-revealing. And these verses explain why. Because there is no dissimilarity between the Father and the Son in their divine nature. As the Son of God, the Son embodies everything it means to be God. Except this time, He's doing it in a way that we can actually visibly, concretely see and hear It's like the beginning of 1 John, right? That which we have seen with our eyes and felt with our hands and heard with our ears and all these things, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself to you and he did it in a person. Turn with me to one of my favorite texts in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews 1. I'll be reading the first four verses. The author of Hebrews says this, Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
God appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sorry, I'm reading the first three verses, not four. Sorry to catch you off guard. To me, this text is just a reworked version of the same thing Matthew 11 has been arguing. Throughout the course of human history, God has shown himself to the world in different ways. He revealed himself through the law. He revealed himself to Moses, right? He reveals himself to the Israelites several different ways. He uses a pillar of fire, a cloud in the sky. Like Raymond said, he he talks about revealing himself through a staff turning into a snake. We see him as the rock providing water in the wilderness. He reveals himself through the prophets, It's like the author of Hebrews says, in a multitude of times and places, many different times, many different ways, God has revealed himself. And as we know, lots of people rejected these. Lots of people chose to ignore them. They chose to mock them. Like the towns Jesus names in Matthew 11, lots of people saw the multitude of this revelation, and they decided that they would not choose to follow God. But the author of Hebrews reminds us that in these final days, God is not going to reveal himself in a unique or new way. Instead, he has spoken to us by his Son. There is no fuller or greater revelation of God to come. We do not need to wait around because it's through the Son's incarnation and his life among us that God has chosen to fully and finally reveal himself to us. This is what the Bible says. Anyone who who tries to tell you anything different is lying to you. They're probably grifting you. This revelation is cosmic in scope. The author of Hebrews tells us that the Son is the one whom the universe was made through and the one who is the heir of all things. He is both the one out of whom all things have their life and sustenance and the one to whom all things are one day returning. This revelation is the invisible made visible. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is God's very radiance, the exact expression of his nature. No longer are the incomprehensible and secret things of God inaccessible to us. They are contained in a person, a living, breathing human being who died on a cross for the sins of the world and resurrected on the third day. This revelation is final. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this by reminding us that after making purification for sins, the Son of God sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His work is complete. There is nothing more to be done for your salvation. There is no other way in which God needs to make himself known. The fullness of divine revelation lies singularly in the person of Jesus Christ. There are people out there who will try to sell you on something different. And like I said, they are lying to you. If what Jesus says about himself in Matthew 11 is true, then we need to be like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, pouring over the scripture and realizing that we have to read them in light of the risen Christ. And suddenly they will come to life for us. We will see that this this book has always been talking about him. Though it was once hidden, it is now revealed because Christ has has become man, dwelt among us, embodied the gospel. 
It reminds me of what Martin Luther is reported to have said to his students while he was lecturing on Galatians. He says this, Stop speculating about the Godhead and climbing into heaven to see who or what or how God is. Hold on to this man, Jesus. He's the only God we've got. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 11. Hold on to me. If you want to know the Father, come to me. Come learn from me. Come inquire about the Father through me because I am the mediator between God and man. And it is only by going through this incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, that we can gain access to the Father. Anyone who wants to come to know the Father and maker of the universe can do so by looking to the image of Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God who made himself known to us that we may truly understand the Father. So we've seen this motif of hiddenness and revelation. We've seen how central it is to the scriptural story. And we've seen Jesus make the claim that he is the definitive revelation of God. But what's the point of all this? What's the purpose, right? Is Jesus just stating a fact and then walking away? Let's continue on. Following these deep truths of God, as we have just seen, Jesus gives us one of the most beautiful offers of the gospel, in my opinion, in the entirety of the New Testament. It's one that you guys have likely heard time and time again, but man, these verses just never get old. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you want to find the path to the good life, Jesus gives it to us here in Matthew 11. Look to him as the full revelation of God, because when you do, the heavy yoke of the law, the heavy yoke of your sin, it, it's lifted off your shoulders. It falls off. It's replaced with the easy yoke of Christ. The veil is lifted fully, finally, once for all, and with it comes the burdens of your worldliness. First, we need to observe the scope of the offer that Jesus gives here. He says what? Come to me, what's the word? All who are weary and burdened. Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon observes the importance of this word, all, being inserted here, saying that there was a great need for the insertion of such a wide word. In case you were misled or led astray by what we discussed earlier about God's hiddenness and revelation, this verse makes it clear that the offer of the gospel extends to any and all, not a select few. There's not a single person excluded from God's good invitation of mercy. For all of us labor, and we all burden by sin. And therefore, we are all bid to come to Jesus. As Spurgeon says, the good news is to be preached to every creature under heaven. And in this particular passage, it is addressed to all laboring and heavy laden. We have a Savior who does not discriminate. He does not care how broken or sinful you think you are. He does not measure how terrible your mess-ups are. He does not see a single soul as unsalvageable. You could have completely wrecked your life or feel like you've wasted years away. You could feel like you are a low-life loser. And guess what? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. 
Jesus promises us the good life. Second, if you've heard someone teach on this text before, you've likely heard someone explain the image of the yoke, right? It's kind of antiquated now because we have like equipment that does a lot of this hard work for us, but you've heard about how it's, it's this thing that would join oxen together so that they could work the fields, right? Uh, oftentimes, these were actually later applied to, to slaves whenever they would be captured um, as a sign of their submission to their slave master. And this isn't a, a faulty image. I'm not telling you that what you've heard is wrong, because that is right, and it does paint a picture here. But I think an even more important feature of this text is often missed if that's where we leave the imagery of the yoke. If we just leave it there and say that that's what it's about, that's fine and good, but I don't think it really gets to the heart of what's happening. We need to connect what Jesus says here to popular Jewish texts of the time. During the centuries immediately before Jesus' life, there was this kind of literature that emerges, wisdom literature. There's some of it in the Bible, Psalms, Proverbs. I think Job might be classified as wisdom literature, technically. I can't remember. I haven't taken the Old Testament survey in years, okay? I don't, I don't remember the specific genre off the top of my head. Uh, but there's, there's examples of this literature in the Old Testament. And there's also lots of books that weren't included in the Bible, that were not divinely inspired, that were also in this same genre of literature, followed the same style, talked about the same themes. And one of the more famous texts from that time contains an autobiographical poem where this Jewish author or Jewish scribe is trying to uh, show the uh, pursuit, the journey to obtain wisdom, right? So he writes this poem that's about how he's pursued wisdom his entire life. And here's what, here's what the author says in this text. Put your neck under the yoke and let your souls receive instruction. It is to be found close by. See with your eyes that I have labored little and found for myself much rest. Now, this is strikingly similar imagery to what we see in Matthew 11. I don't think Jesus is like quoting it or alluding to this specific passage or anything like that. However, I do think he's drawing intentionally on common cultural imagery of these yokes being associated with pursuing wisdom. But notice what Jesus says and how it's different than what we see in the Jewish presentation of wisdom. When Jesus calls us to take up his yoke, he's not calling us to be passive. The force of action changes, right? We're not just putting our neck under the yoke. Jesus commands us to take up the yoke, to actively assume the cross of Christ and learn from his example so that we may rest. One commentator notes that nowhere in Jewish writing does anyone say such a thing pointing out that Judaism has always said to accept the yoke of the law, to obey the yoke of the law, but is never anywhere that we can find say to take it actively. What we have happening here is more than just Jesus drawing on cultural imagery. He's actually flipping the whole thing on its head. He's saying that he is the true source of wisdom and that it's obtained by taking up the cross of Christ and following after him. Now, we often fixate on the first part of the sentence, right? Take up my yoke. We've all, we've all heard people talk about that a ton. But we seem to pass by this second half of the sentence. Take up my yoke and learn from me. There's actually two commandments here. 
He, takes, he tells us to take his words, to learn from them, not to become arrogant or puffed up, not, to be, not because we want to be smarter than everyone else, but so that we can learn about the Father as the Son reveals him. And it is by learning from Jesus that we may obtain the good life and that we may f- truly find rest. In this passage, we've seen Jesus make a series of statements between, uh, about the relationship between the Father and the Son, and these are actually really complex and deep statements about the inner life of the Trinity. Like, I don't know how else to put it, but they're very profound, talking about the Son knowing the Father and the Father knowing the Son and, and how that relationship works. This is like doctoral level theology type stuff, right? But he tells us that this is how we obtain our rest, by learning God. If you want to find rest from the world, rest from your sin, rest from your suffering and your burdens, do not look to the wisdom of this world. Here in Matthew 11, Jesus himself has told us that God has hidden the truth from those who think they are wise and intelligent, who think that they don't need to learn. But from those who have the eyes to see their lack of knowledge, for those who are humble enough to seek to learn from him, those who have the humility to recognize their need for a savior, God reveals his truth. The free gift of the gospel brings us rest for our tired, weary, sin-sick souls, if only we have the eyes to see our need for a savior. I want to begin closing. I actually have a a couple little things. I know everyone always says they're closing and they're not and then they're not. So I'm going to warn you, even though I'm saying I'm closing, there's there's a little bit more. Um, But I I want to close with with a quote from one of the best-selling Christian books of the last several years. It takes its title from these verses. Um, It's titled Gentle and Lowly. I think there's copies at the book table, but if there's not and you want one, let me know. We have like a billion of them. Um, The publisher had an underwritten donation to send a bunch of these copies to churches. That's why we have so many of them. Um, And so we're happy to give you a copy for free if you want to read it. But in it, at the very beginning of the book, the author says uh, this this couple sentences, which I think just really captures why uh, this passage from the words of Jesus has had such a deep resonance with people over the years. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness... His supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It's all he needs. Indeed, it's the only thing he works with. Whether you are actively working hard to crowbar your life into smoothness or passively finding yourself weighed down by something outside your control, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come in out of the storm, outstrips even your own. This might be an odd way to close the sermon, but I I added this last second. I I opened my Facebook this morning, uh, like I often do. It's probably a terrible habit to look at your phone first thing, right? But but oftentimes I try to, I'll, I'll prepare for the day, I'm half awake, I lay in bed, Milo's usually like under the covers cuddling me, so I'll just like lay there and pet him and kind of try to wake up or whatever. Um, but I'll check, I'll often check my Facebook memories, right? It's, it's what I'll uh, usually do in the mornings. And I want to read you what I wrote on this day eight years ago. 
October 8th, 2015, I wrote, Today marks four years since God invaded my bedroom, picked my weepy-eyed self up, and assured me I am bigger than your depression. It has been four years of him giving and taking, but I look back and I have to well up in praise. God is good to me. 2 Corinthians 4 has been and continues to be my theme. He is merciful and is preparing for us glory that we cannot fathom. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Whenever I think about that night, 12 years ago now, a 15-year-old kid running away from the call of Jesus to take up his yoke and find rest in him, thinking about, I, I have worked myself to the point of depression, despair, suicide ideation, hopelessness, I, I have to say, I thank God for inserting the wide offer of the gospel. These are only light and momentary afflictions that we face, but they are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this reward is yours too if you take up the yoke of Christ. If you are here today and you are running yourself ragged, you are looking for the good life, I have big news for you. You won't find it anywhere else. I'm going to ask one of our elders to go ahead and, and come up. Um, I think Harold's going to come pray so that I can get ready to close the service in song. Um, but I would encourage you to find one of our elders. Harold's here. Raymond's here. Um, find me if you need to. If, if you are looking for the good life, if you are not saved, it is such a mercy to know that the burden of sin can be removed by taking up the yoke of Christ, finding true rest. Christ alone is the only one who is able to bear the weight of our sin. And there is boundless grace in his gospel if you are humble and childlike enough to accept your need for a savior. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray together.